Sometimes we can imagine that we are practicing meditation or we can imagine that we are being mindful or we can imagine that we are paying attention. And one of the um, factors that makes the depth of meditation elusive to us is that we don't see that we are actually often just practicing with our ordinary mind. In other words, we're paying attention, but we're paying attention from the same reference point we always pay attention from. Which is like saying that we pay attention with certain assumptions or expectations. Or we pay attention with the body of our past experience behind us or with us. And when we practice meditation this way, meditation feels rather dry. You know, you can feel a little bit of calm, a little bit of peace. And that's certainly better than feeling a little bit of suffering or struggle. But we're kept from knowing the full scope of what is available to us within our own lucid awareness. Because we're not, the word I'm using today is virginal, we're not fresh. We're not completely new. Inside of that reference point are subtle assumptions and expectations that flavor the way we experience meditation or any moment of lucid awareness. And the idea is that perhaps we could break through that ordinary filter, that series of images with seams stitching them together. And we might find that if we expose ourselves to that awareness that we begin to expose ourselves to a mystery inside of us. The Oracle of Delphi was asked who the wisest man in Greece was and she answered Socrates. And when she was asked why, she said, because he knows that he doesn't know anything. And Socrates is a, an example of a, of a virginal mind, a mind that's in contact with the mystery. We might want to release any notion of what it might mean not to know things, because we, our mind would have some interesting assumptions about what that would mean to not know, to be in contact with a mystery, you know. You know, not knowing doesn't mean that you forget which hand you write with or what foods are healthy for your body or, you know, 
where your work is located. <laughs> but it means that this reference point through which we bring our assumptions and expectations is dislodged from its place at the center of our attention. And that is a very, very difficult thing to do, one that requires an extraordinary amount of discipline. Because the tendency for this reference point we call me and myself and my experience and my world is so practiced, so well practiced, that it will gravitate right into the center of our awareness again and again without our even knowing it even happened. And so you have this moment of lucid awake, wakefulness and a week later you're asking yourself, what the hell happened? How did I lose that? Because this reference point is so well practiced and so habitual in nature that we keep mistaking it for ourself. In other words, we forget to be virginal. We forget to be constantly new and constantly fresh and constantly renewed in every moment. And so we start to feel like we've got some kind of history developing, some kind of experience, some kind of, I don't know. And we build things upon that. You know, it's like I've had this experience and now I feel confident about that experience and now I'm going to go out and do something because I feel confident about that experience. And then we're out there doing something and all of a sudden we feel impotent. It's like, what happened? But to be the mystery that we are is not comfortable. In fact, it's the opposite of comfort, which you might think of as discomfort, but it's not. The opposite of comfort is alive, not discomfort. And this is the cruel joke that we keep playing on ourselves is that we confuse our state of comfort and the familiarity of our self, our self-reference with good. Because it feels as though without that, everything will be chaos. Everything will be hardship. Everything will be discomfort. But it's not so. Everything will be a mystery, of course. But the mystery will be alive. Take, for example, you go home to your friends or parents or children or spouse or whoever you are living with, associated with. And suppose in that interaction you are completely virginal. You are completely in touch with the mystery, not only that you are, but that they are. And suppose that the person you're looking at, you don't know at all. Because all you really know is your reference point with all of your ideas about who they are and the accumulated experiences that you've had with those individuals. <clears throat> now suppose you walk in the door and now there's a mystery meeting a mystery. God meeting God for the first time. Not again, but for the first time. And suppose that everything we've done together doesn't matter, which can be a scary thought or an enlivening one, depending on which side of the fence you're on. But suppose that you were to enter each moment of your life new. Suppose that this moment was the first time, the first moment. 
Suppose that the next bluebird you see, it's the first bluebird you see. And suppose that we could look with those virginal eyes, those childlike eyes of innocence, at ourself, our world, each other. All the while in touch with the mystery, but not lost. You know, a lot of people feel that if they were to be in touch with the, the vast, I call it the question mark at the center of your being, if you were to be in touch with that, that you would be lost or chaotic or you wouldn't know how to function or operate or you wouldn't know who you are, which would be true, but the assumption behind it all is that that would be a problem. That you couldn't live life that way, that you couldn't live wisely and lovingly that way. But suppose we challenge that assumption by actually being that mystery that we are and encountering that mystery wherever we are. And suppose that rather than that being a chaotic experience or disorienting experience, that it was one that just felt alive and fresh. One that, an experience that wasn't bound by the laws of the past or expectations of the future. I think we'd feel a lot like a kid again with all the joy and love and interest that the child knows. But we would have the wisdom of the adult. We would have the experience of the adult. And there can be a great sense of risk that goes with this because if you are a child and in your innocence, in your contact with your virginal awareness and godlike, mysterious nature and you got clubbed over the head, you might think that if you return to that innocent virginal awareness, you're going to get clubbed over the head again. And well, you could, I guess. I guess somebody could club you over the head. But you don't know that. And when you think that you know that, you're operating upon certain assumptions and expectations that feed, feed us right back into the reference points that we've created. I know that what we're talking about can be rather thick. So I also want to make sure that we're being concrete. That's important. Because I'm not just talking philosophy and theory here, but something that we might actually put into practice, into existence. And I understand that sometimes when we're attempting to do that, it's not so obvious to us. Which is a good thing, because when it's not obvious to you, you have the mystery that you are. Just a week ago, I was talking with a gentleman who was trying to give birth to something in himself that he hasn't known before in his life. And uh, one of the things that he asked me was, well, can you give me an example of somebody who lives with these qualities? And I said, no. He said, why not? He said, because, I said, because it's your job to manifest them in yourself without looking to use something else, some model or some idea to imitate. Right? And what I was getting at in this conversation with this person was, you have a deep mystery inside of you and you can give birth to it if you will allow yourself. And you don't need a reference point. You don't need to look at something you've known in the past or some image you've seen or 
some person who seemed to operate that way and then try to be like that. Because when this mystery wants to be born in us, it wants to be born in us fresh. That's the one thing. I mean, to, one degree, to some degree, we're all monkeys, right? So in, in what is a, a big part of monkey behavior is imitation. But the godlike mystery inside of you cannot be imitated. If you try to imitate it, you will end up, what you'll do is you'll create an image that is based on an image you've seen before or an experience you've seen before. So this, this virginal awareness, this godlike mystery inside of us is a deep challenge and one that brings us into a constant contact with our life and its possibility now. Now. Right? And five minutes from now, this now will be dead. It'll no longer be useful. And there's something of a, here of a, we're just staying right on the tip of our experience, right on the front edge of our experience. It's like you're racing through space at the speed of light and you have no idea what you're going to encounter and you're going way too fast to control it. So you have no idea what's going to emerge. You may go long periods without just, with just in total black space. And then you may encounter massive planets or stars. You have no idea what you're going to face. And the usual feeling within us is, I need to know what's coming. I need to have my seatbelt on. I need to have my helmet ready. I need to have my, the proper tools available to me. I need to be prepared for what's coming. That's true from a certain point of view but it's not true from the point of view of virginal awareness and our God-like mysterious nature. So the idea here is that we can actually bring about a new life by being new. What a lot of people try to do is they try to bring about a new life by rearranging old principles. That's why those, that's why those things don't work, like, like New Year's resolutions. They don't work for that reason. Because you're, you're formulating a new life goal with an old life purpose. And so what can you do but end up bound to the same past that you have known? So whatever you resolve, it fails. Because it's not new. It's just a reformulation of something old. You know? Take, for example, someone who might have the you know, very common New Year's resolution of losing weight. Let's say I decide I want to lose 20 pounds. And, but my thinking is still based on the idea that I'm not okay as I am, right? That being overweight is bad, whatever. All the, the basic beliefs that might accompany such a state. And so in our movement toward losing 20 pounds, we're plagued by this constant feeling that wearing an extra 20 pounds on us it makes us, what, unattractive or... I don't know, unhealthy or unskillful or whatever it makes us. And so that makes us feel bad enough that we're bound to forget all about that diet that we've taken up a couple weeks in and just resign ourselves, you know, 20 pounds is okay, 25 pounds is okay, 30 is okay, you know. And so we forget all about it. We forget all about the goal at a certain point. What if we were to approach, you know, something like that resolution with the idea that you could actually live a better life, that you could actually feel better, 
inside of yourself and that that was your true motivation. You know? Where your motivation wasn't about losing weight. It was about being what you could be instead. Right? You might find yourself feeling so good about that that you might actually lose weight without even trying to lose weight. And now this is just one silly example that I've chosen, but the idea is that what changes us isn't our old intentions transferred into a new picture. It's the birth of something new. And if we're to birth something new, we've got to be virginal. We've got to be ready for that new to come into existence without our having planned it or organized it. Because the one sure thing about the ego is it keeps recreating itself as the one in charge. And so every project it takes up ends up with basically the same result. It's like you've got slightly different details in your life, but with the same basic reference point behind it, operating it. You know? You know what I'm saying? Does this make sense to you? Does this click with your experience? Okay, good. I know it clicks with mine, but I, you know, <coughs> never sure. Maybe I could be crazy. There's a good chance of that, actually. I just ask my, <laughs> my close companions. Um, what do you have? What do you have? What are you realizing? What are you contemplating? What are you questioning? Mm. Sorry, it's why? Because mm. not think outside the box. <laughs> right. Because your reference part point is inside the box. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. So. Uh huh. You can't think outside the box. Yeah. Right. right. So then I, and this is three dimensional, which is probably already flawed in my thinking, but you're talking about a reference point, that's what location is here. Yeah. Um, that's what it has one, theoretically. Yeah. Yep. But we're not seeing all of it. We're only seeing from our perspective inside our box. So, because we all have our own reference point. So, what is the, where should our attention go? Where's the right reference point to, in order to know? And as I look for that, even if I think sometimes I find it, I realize that that You're talking it right into existence yeah. as you speak it. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. Talk That's a good phrase. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Yes, that's the truth. In a sense, what we could say is, you articulated it, I mean, you did so almost in a, I mean, uh, humorous, I don't mean that as like laughing at you, but there's some kind of beauty and humor in the fact that you are articulating the mystery as you spoke about this, in a sense, because you're quite right. Anything you do from inside the box, it's more like 
you're not really doing anything outside the box. You're just coloring the inside of the box differently, right? And so it, make, it gives you the temporary experience of outside the box. You know, you can draw sky and clouds on the inside of the box and think, wow, I'm out in the open sky now, right? Only to find out that, nope, you're still in the box, right? So the kind of question I, I hear you saying is, how do we get to outside of the box? And it, Right, there's no box, except, except for the illusory one that we keep generating, right. right? And so, you know, the one thing we're faced with is this incredible mystery of, okay, if I'm not locating myself as inside the box, as a reference point inside the box, where is my location? And you're right, it's everywhere. And that's the deep mystery we don't know how to handle, is basically it is to say that everything outside the box is real and everything inside the box is imagined. And so long as we're having the experience of inside a box, it's imagined, and anything outside of the box is unimagined, but you lose a reference point. In other words, you don't have a center to which, from which to view things, right? It's what I call perceptionless perception, right? Now, you can look and you can see that from my perspective, I'm right, and from your perspective, you're right, and so on and so forth with all of us. But there is a perspective outside of each individual perspective. And I think that the location is necessary here because it's now. Now is the one thing that we can't refute. Now, this is difficult to, to um, articulate because when we talk about now, we're talking about now in its essence. And now in its essence is different than now through your interpretation of now, right? Now through your interpretation will still filter through your reference points. You know, so you feel a little bored or you feel a little inspired or you feel a little whatever. And that's how you color the experience. But what you're saying is so true. There's an, there's an experience, a now, a perceiving, if you will, that takes place that is not a part of any box. Right? And that's our lucid awareness. That's our virginal awareness in operation. But it's quite a mystery. I mean, and, and you, just even in trying to get the words for it, you were, you were so, um, if I could affectionately say cute, <laughs> in, in the way that the mystery was there, it's like it takes away all of our words. It takes away all of our, our notions and reference points, and it just leaves us sort of, it's like we don't really know what to say. We don't really have any particular vantage point or viewpoint to say anything from. And that's exactly the right location. You know? Do you take away the location and space? Yes. And time, because there is no time, because it's just now. Right. But then there's also, that's not a, that's not a, um, that's not to say that we lose the sense of location with our body-mind mechanism. Although, actually, if you, if you drop into very deep states of the mystery, you will lose that also. But that sense that there's a body-mind mechanism and it's located, you know, relatively 10 feet from you and 8 feet from the wall and whatnot, but my true location isn't locatable that it's beyond location or point. And that's when things get really interesting, right? Because then I'm everywhere. 
Not as a body-mind, that's impossible. It's impossible for your body-mind to be everywhere. But you start to see that the virginal awareness that is really here, experiencing your life, is also everywhere. The awareness. Yeah. has no break in it whatsoever. But man, that reference point is sneaky. You want to know how the reference point asserts itself? I'll give you the secret. It begins with the first word that you utter in most of your sentences, I. That's where your reference point begins. It's not, it's not in the word, I. It's in what you mean when you use that word. Because most often when we say I, we're talking about somebody with a past, present, and future, a reference point full of ideas and beliefs and opinions and perspectives. And before that first letter has even made its way out of our mouth, there's already a whole cosmos that's been created inside of a box. And everything that flows out of that box, or doesn't really flow out of that box, Everything that revolves, I'm losing you, aren't I? We're getting really abstract, okay. Everything that revolves and flows inside that box is just a part of that one same swirl. So it's like before we've even opened our mouth to even express an idea, it's there. And then we vocalize it first by saying, I. I think, I believe, I perceive, I know. But who is this I? What is this I behind it all? And that's the real mystery, is that we keep on using this word I without even having any idea of what it really is. What the hell is that I? I mean, really, what is it? Isn't it, isn't it really just the reference point that we think of as myself and all that that stands for? So most of the things that flow out of our mouth are just completely ways of rehashing the past. You know? I think it's before you can get to that understanding or glimpse that awareness of what you're talking about. What you're saying seems so out there. It's deep, yeah. And deep or yeah, we Mm-hmm. But once you have a glimpse of it, you're like, oh yeah, it's all about Like, so how do you, anyway, that's just one thought. But my question is, is uh, so you glimpse that, and then you go right back into your box. <laughs> well, yeah, because from the mysterious point of virginal awareness, it's like you don't have any framework to operate from. All you have is now. All you have is the spontaneous flow of your being within the now. And that, for most people, it's not actually uncomfortable, it's actually ecstatic, but people shy away from it because they're afraid. They're afraid that that's going to produce some terrible result. And so they quickly reassert their reference point inside the box because it sucks, but it's familiar, and it feels 
a little bit safe inside the box, kind of. Not really, but it has images of safety written on the walls, <laughs> you know? Yeah, there's a fear. I mean, that's really the main cause is there's fear. It's like if you begin to taste yourself as the vastness of, of consciousness without a reference point and being a total mystery, there's a sense of like, oh, shit, I can't hang out here because something bad's going to happen. You know, like, like you're going to walk in a daze right in front of a car and it's going to strike you down because you, don't, because you were just in virginal, mysterious awareness. And that's a, that's a fear that has more power than we think. It has a lot of power. Well, it has a lot of supposed power in the sense that we really obey it, we really listen to it. Because in that moment of being free of your habitual reference point, you're undergoing a death. You're undergoing a death. And that feels scary. It's the death of everything you've known. And everything you've known has informed everything that you're doing for the large part. And so to give birth to that mysterious presence in you feels somehow threatening. Like it's going to compromise your life as you've known it. It may change your life as you've known it. But there's nothing to be afraid of. And so we're faced with this sort of on one side, there's this incredible fear of the unknown. And on the other side, this terrific excitement about the unknown. And if we will give ourselves to the terrific excitement of the unknown, it's actually beautiful and alive. But if we have one iota of fear, we'll just go back into our box where it feels safe. You know? What if we could step into the unknown with an implicit knowing that though we don't know anything, it's good. That it's good. And that what will arise within you and through you will be good also. Because you're in contact with something much more magnificent than a little box. Sometimes what the spiritual seeker does is they think, okay, I'm going to get rid of my little box and I'm going to get a, a vast cosmic box, right? And so you play the enlightenment trip for a while of like, I'm going to give up my little self and I'm going to discover my true higher self. And now I'm in touch with my true higher self. And what you get is you get a very elaborate extension of your little box. It's like you've taken your little box and you pumped it up. So now it's a really big little box. But still, you know, that box remains a limit, a boundary around our experience. One that we will always secretly have a drive and an urge to go beyond, to expand beyond the box. Like Rumi says, take an axe to the prison walls. Walk out now like someone some, suddenly born into color. That's the idea. It's like inside the box is black and white. Outside the box is color. Everything inside the box is black and white. Everything outside the box is color. What's weird about us is that we can jump out the box, have an experience of color, and then reorganize a new box around us with the same patterns, but now in black and white. You know, this is the ego's ability to always, in a chameleon-like way, change itself 
to become something different, but not really different, kind of the same, just a bigger version of the same thing. I know it's tempting in our conversation to, today to get a little bit more philosophical or esoteric or just plain weird, but really, you know, what we're talking about, if we, if, like you're saying, is that if we really understand it, it's absolutely concrete. And it's concrete because it's now. It's this moment undressed. This moment without clothing, concepts, or ideas. This moment fresh, virginal. to something more concrete. So, and, and I understand and appreciate that abstract thing also. So that's cool. Yeah. Um, I'm starting to recognize <clears throat> the situation, uh, making plans with my partner. It's like when this particular kind of situation comes up, it's like, now I can say, oh, this is one of those. This, you know, this, this kind of, this is the pattern where I get extra emotional charge or something. Then um, my approach is okay. Um, I need some more skills. I need to. I need to do some learning here. I need to listen. Listen better. Work on my listening. Work on communication, and that will make this better. Make this more smooth. Make uh, lead to peace and ease. Uh, ease in the future. And um, so I think all that's inside the box. And uh, it might be a different approach that doesn't require any building skills or figuring things out or mm -hmm. recognizing patterns, mm -hmm. any of that. Quite so. Quite so. Not to invalidate your experience or your skills because they're useful in the way that they're useful. So I don't want to negate them or deny them at all. But I think one of the things that we encounter when we look at the skills or the strategies or techniques that we use is that there's always some element of, him, of them that pertain to past and future. You know, there's always some element where it's like I'm wanting to employ, you know, X skill because my past experience looked this way and I'd like to have my future experience look this way. Yeah, the, and, whole, the whole reason this has got my attention is because I got this extra charge. Right. I didn't have that. Right. Thing. Right. And so there's something in our experience that we want to change. And it's you know, usually some remnant of past experience traveling forward into current moment. And the idea, I think, is that, and this is what's so difficult to communicate, is the idea really is do nothing about it. Because the one thing that we haven't tried is to do nothing about it, you know? So we go on trying different skills, and then we'll find, I mean, you click online, you can find skills you know, skill after skill after skill for how to deal with X, Y, or Z. But the one thing we don't typically try is trying nothing. And that's the interesting piece. That's where the virginal awareness comes in. Because the, when we really look back to the freshness of awareness, it's not trying to change anything. It's not trying to manipulate anything. So when our skills and techniques come in, it's because we're trying to alter something, you know? And in that, there's a kind of... Um, discord with what's happening, right? And usually because it's painful and we don't like it. And so the idea is that if we can actually position ourselves within that fresh awareness, 
without trying to apply a skill or technique, that's actually where insight or wisdom is born. Because in that moment, we see what's happening in a different light. And usually then it loses its charge. Usually then it, it doesn't, it, there's nothing fur further to continue it in the way of the discomfort continuing, nor in the way of needing to employ a certain skill to change the future. You know what I mean? Um, so, you know, as impractical as it sounds, the fresh awareness is the medicine. But it's the medicine when it's freed of the techniques and strategies that we tend to employ. I mean, I think, honestly, I think a person has to employ skills and strategies to even get to the point where they're ready for the application of awareness. Because for most individuals, probably 95 to 99% of individuals, they can't make that leap in their consciousness from stuck to pure awareness. You know? But once we've acquired the skills and worked with the skills and techniques, there's a certain kind of readiness that comes out of that for awareness. And so it's almost like, it's not another skill, but it's almost like upgrading the medicine to another level. You know? What we find over time with our skills and our strategies, I mean, eventually what it boils down to is I'm employing strategies and I'm employing techniques because I'm constantly trying to change something. And if you get, in, if you get really into and interested this tendency to try to change things, there's something about that that's actually very significant. Why am I always wanting to change things? Why am I constantly trying to alter the course of my life? Why am I always, you know what I mean? And it starts to appear in us as like this sense of interference. Like I'm always interfering with my own experience. And it turns out that that's actually a really painful thing. When I'm interfering with my experience, it's like I'm telling myself things aren't okay the way they are. And there's anxiety in that. There's tension in that. And so over time, gradually what happens in us is that more and more or less and less we are doing. More and more we're in a state of pure allowing or pure non-doing because we see it unwise to interfere with our experience in any way. I think there's a real fear in us that if we don't manipulate our experience in some way, our life isn't going to turn out the way we want it to. You know? Like, if we don't keep tweaking it, our life is not going to, we're just going to end up the same. We're not going to grow. We're not going to evolve. We're not going to be happier. We're not going to be stronger. We're not going to feel more alive. But if we really look at the evidence, the evidence points to the constant interference keeps us from growing, keeps us from expanding. It's like within our box, we've learned some really good postures and techniques to use. And they're wonderful, but sometimes they're still keeping us in the same old box.
And quite honestly, there's nothing wrong with living in a box. You know, if you prefer to live in a box, you're completely welcome to. It's not a sin. It's not bad. The only thing we can say in this setting is you may be missing out on some things because life inside of a box is pretty small. But again, really, there's nothing wrong with it. People choose to live in boxes. We meet them all the time. Everyday life, we encounter them all over the place. People who choose to live in boxes. They're still good people. They still have good hearts. They still have some intelligence about them. But we can feel it in us as that sense of, I'm not giving birth to the full possibility in myself. I'm limiting myself in some way. Well, I've gone on for quite a while. Do you have anything left to say? Questions, experiences, insights, spontaneous musings from the mystery. There are practical steps. <clears throat> How to say this? There are practical steps, but they're not under our control. So our, our step, our one step, if you will, is surrender in the sense of anything I do to eliminate the box is going to create more box. You know what I mean? It's like whatever I do just contributes to the same model. And if you really touch into that, it feels like a powerlessness. It's like there's nothing you can do to erase the box. And if you sense that, you're on the right track. That's the right track. You should get to the feeling where there's nothing I can do to erase the box. But understand that wisely, right? Because a lot of people will feel disheartened by it. They'll feel like there's nothing I can do to fill the box or to, um, undo the box, mm. right? But if you take it wisely as there's nothing I can do to create the, to eliminate the box because everything I do keeps creating more box. You know, it's like the image of the snake eating its tail. It's like it eats the tail which perpetuates the snake which, you know, just keeps going in that same circular motion. If you get onto that, that there's nothing you can do because everything you do creates more box, that's the birth of wisdom. And that's the moment where surrender comes. You realize that there's something I'm doing here that even though my intention is to eliminate the box, I keep creating more of it. And I think that's what takes place in us as a process or the steps, is that we gradually come to greater and greater and greater forms of surrender as we move along. But it, it, there's a big piece in just acknowledging that we don't know, you know? It's like, I know I don't want to live in a box. We all know that. But I don't know how to eliminate it. And that's okay. But, and I'll tell you this. If you have the sincere desire for your box to be eliminated, and you don't know how to do it, it will be done for you in a way that you could not even possibly understand. But it will wear away all of the defenses, all of the mechanisms that hold your box together. And when that box is undone, it'll be like, huh, 
huh, a lot of spiritual work actually happens as a result of not knowing what the hell you're doing. Honestly. But the desire for it, that's the thing I would say, I guess, is cultivate the deep desire to, to live a life outside of the box. And that desire is going to create a certain charge in your life. And that is going to bring about things that will slowly erode the walls of the box. Unfortunately, there are no good practical techniques because every technique that I could ever give you, and I know lots of them, is going to be creating another form of box, you know? I mean, if I tell you, chant this mantra every day for, you know, a hundred days, hundred times a day, and you will eliminate your box. You will now get a wall of your box with one, 1,000, wait, no, 10,000 mantras on it. You will now have that as a wall in your box, right? Which will become unsatisfying. It won't be enough. It won't feel like, it won't be the unbound sky, you know? Is this making sense? Well, let me clarify something quick, because I agree with you that some boxes are belief systems, but the box I'm talking about isn't a belief system, it's the sense of self that we carry with us through those belief systems, like a, a box inside of a box, maybe, and that's the one that's difficult. But I agree with you on, on the belief systems, yes. Yes, you can undo boxed belief systems, for sure. I mean, you can undo the box of self-reference point as well. It's just a lot more tricky. So you, the box, you're describing the box as the self. Yes. The, the box as the false self. False self. The, the image and idea that we carry. The of, egoic, yeah. Yep. The eye. Yep. The eye. Yeah. The eye as we have known it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what makes it difficult, right? It's like, what can I do to erode my box? You're already in the problem. You're already in the box. What can I do to eliminate the Right, exactly. Exactly, exactly. And that's what makes it ultimately futile. But if we can recognize that, that it's futile, then we're on to something. We're on to something then. But belief systems, definitely, and I would suggest that. That's a good skill. Let's, let's, undo our, our um, distorted belief systems because they don't serve us. They're certainly not helping anything. Yeah, I think that's a, for me, it's been a bigger trap in my spiritual practice, creating spiritual practice boxes. Yeah. Right. And it all reinforces that self-desire. Right. Right. Yep. You see, it, you see it a lot with people who adopt idols, whether it's the guru or whatever. Is this, this notion of like, 
I'm saved because I believe in this. Mm. It's the heart of fundamentalism. Yeah. And prejudice. Yeah. Yep. Truly. You want the most concise answer? Nothing. <laughs> nothing, ultimately. Yeah. Nothing. But that, you see, when we say do nothing, we're actually prescribing a positive action. When, when most people hear the phrase do nothing, you hear a passive state of inactivity. But I'm actually saying do nothing. Like it's an active state of doing nothing. And if you understand what that means, it means meditation. It means virginal awareness. That's what it means. Do nothing. While you're washing the dishes. While you're washing the dishes and paying your bills and changing diapers and, you know, whatever it is, exercising. Mm -hmm. Outwardly, you'll look like somebody living in a box. Inwardly, no box. You'll be like the sky. And that's a fun place to exist. And when people come, they'll knock on your door and they'll say, hey, you want to do a box thing together? And you'll say, sorry, I'm the sky. <laughs> all right, you're all probably going to need a stiff drink after this one, so. <laughs> it's good to spend this time with you. Namaste. <laughs>